be here. I'm going to be over in Village East uh, preaching peace, uh, the second theme of Advent. Um, and then, but here, we're going to have a, an old friend of Village, called, a guy called Lonnie Short. Lonnie and Disty, Lonnie and Disty, uh, they are American, yes, in case you wondered by those names. Um, they're old friends of Lucas and Sue's, um, and they're coming over to support Luke and Sue at the minute, and uh, he's actually preaching in Village uh, East this morning, and he's going to be coming over and doing the second Sunday of Advent for you guys here while I go over there. Um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm not looking forward to being away from here, but I'm looking forward to being back over there on a Sunday, it'll be kind of cool. Um, but... But this is my favorite time of the year. I, I'm unashamedly like pro-Christmas. Uh, love it. Love Advent. Love the whole thing. Yesterday morning, got to do the Advent calendar with Finley, and it was great. Um, and as we heard, like, this is, the, as, as Rachel kind of showed us earlier on, this is the season when we, we celebrate Jesus' first coming and then look forward to his second coming, right? Because Jesus is coming again, okay? That's, what, that's a fundamental belief of Christianity, um, and it's good news. Jesus' second coming is good news for us, right? Why? Because when he comes again, that's when he's going to establish his kingdom of peace that will last forever. And us as Christians and every other person that's really ever truly known him, that has ever lived, will join, the Bible says, join with him and reign and rule with him forever in his kingdom of peace. Isn't that incredible? So the church has been celebrating Advent for hundreds of years. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of years, and sometimes uh, people ask me, "Well, why do we why do we do this? Like, why do we why do we focus in on this season of Advent?" So, before we get into starting the series, I kind of want to take a wee minute and just explain why Advent. So, if you're not familiar with it, the word Advent it, it comes from this Latin word Adventus, <laughs> which means coming. It's just literally a Latin word for coming. So, Advent is about coming. Advent is about anticipation, and Advent is about waiting. Advent is waiting on the coming. And I think it's important because maybe, like me, you'll think that as a society in general, we've, we've lost the ability to wait, haven't we? I, I feel that way, right? So if I want something, I'll just Amazon Prime it. I do this all the time. Amazon Prime it and it's here tomorrow. Or no, nobody waits and saves up for something anymore. You just buy it on credit. Or actually, Jack was saying the other night that if, um, if a website doesn't load within three seconds, it loses like 70% of its traffic. Not right? Like that's, that's three seconds. We've lost the ability to wait. We have instant, we have instant information at the swipe of a finger. Even we, we don't want to wait for Christmas, so we put our trees up at the end of November. Guilty. And because <laughs> we want Christmas to start now. Technically, it was the last day of November, so don't judge. But we want Christmas to start now. We've lost the, we've lost the ability uh, to wait. But the truth is that, that, that God... I like how Tilly's in the toy box. That's my favorite thing right now. Um, but God created us to wait. We're, we're, we're created to wait, okay? So the, the whole of the Old Testament is the people of God waiting on the promised one coming. And, and he sent his son in the fullness of time. And Jesus will come again in the fullness of time. And we're created to submit to this waiting. And just... Uh, as, as the ancient Israelites waited for the coming of, of the Messiah in the flesh, we wait for the coming of the Messiah in glory. So someone put it this way. In Advent, believers confess that the infant who gasped his first breath at the hands of a virgin in a cattle shed has yet to speak his final word. And I think that's really powerful. 
It's not just about a baby Jesus. It's about the glorious, victorious ruler of the nations, Jesus. But I'm, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't celebrate Christmas until the 25th of December. Like, as you know, I love Christmas, so go ahead, knock yourself out, go to the parties, do the carol service, the whole thing. But what I am suggesting is that maybe in this instant gratification, wait for nothing society that we live in, that maybe, maybe, just maybe, we need to learn to wait. We need to appreciate that there's blessing in the waiting. We need to appreciate the, the godliness of the waiting. In the scripture, Old New Testament is about looking forward to Jesus, either his first or second coming. So we are, in a very real sense, people of Advent. We are people of hope. And this is why we observe Advent. Now there's four, there's four words associated with the season of Advent. Uh, hope, peace, joy, and love. And what we're going to do over the next four weeks is, um, is take each of these words and find out what the Bible says about them, what they mean, and how they're fulfilled in Jesus. And each Sunday we're going to light a, 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 we're going to light a different candle of hope, peace, joy, and love. And then on Christmas Eve when we meet together, we're going to light the white candle, as Rachel said, the candle of Christ, who is the embodiment and fulfillment of all these things. Yeah, it's funny. I get, I get very emotional this time of year. I just want to make this clear from the outset. The reason we do this is because hope is hopeless without Jesus, right? Hope is fake without Jesus. Peace is shallow without Jesus. Jo- what joy? Joy isn't lasting outside of Jesus. And, and what love is there except the love that we just sang about? It wasn't Neil's that held Jesus to the cross. The Bible tells us he could have, he could have called down 10,000 angels to save him. It was love that held him to the cross. And so this is why we celebrate Advent. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to get stuck into to hope. Uh, Father, we need your help this morning. We just admit to ourselves and to each other and to you especially that, that we're weak and we're broken and we're needy. We're distracted. We've got so many things to worry about. We've got so many things pressing on us. We're hurting. We need you to speak to us clearly this morning, Jesus. We want to see the hope that you bring, the hope that is fulfilled in you. So Father, be with us as we open your word and hear what you have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so as we think about hope, I want, I want to start by asking you to think about a time, right, think about a time when you were in an extended season of looking forward to something, right? Anticipating something, something good. So maybe you booked a trip, maybe you booked a holiday and it's a few months in advance and you're in that, like, as it gets closer, you get more and more excited about the fact that you're going to go and do whatever, right? Or maybe, maybe you were engaged and you were looking forward to your wedding day. Like, oh, what, what's, what's her dress going to look like? Or, you know, how, what will it be like to, to be with that person every day? Or maybe, maybe you've been pregnant and you're looking forward to uh, the birth of a child. Like, is it going to be a boy or a girl? Or what would her personality be like? What would it be like to never sleep a full night? <laughs> what, when was the last time you felt that way? And, and just remember for a second, what did that feel like? What did that anticipation feel like? See, hope is this really important concept in the Bible. And actually, if you start paying attention to it, there's certain things in the Bible that um, 
you can read the Bible and not notice them, right? Uh, if you read the Bible a lot, you can kind of not notice it. But if you, from now on, if you, if you look out for hope, hope is all over the Bible. It's all over the, the Old Testament, all over the New Testament. And, and the Bible uses uh, various different words for this concept of hope. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the, two of the main Old Testament words used for hope. And the first one is yachal. This word, Hebrew word, yachal. Don't worry, you don't have to remember this, but hopefully you do, because I think it gives some significance. Now, yachal uh, simply means to wait, right? So we see this in the story of Noah and the ark. So Noah, um, God sends this flood to wash away all the evil in the world and to start afresh. And he chooses Noah to save his family and the animals, and Noah builds a big ark, and, and then God sends the rain, and the floods come up, and Noah and his family and the animals are safely in the ark. And then the, the rain finally stops. But, but Noah just can't open the door and let everybody out because they just all drown. The world's covered in water. So he has to wait. He has to wait for the waters to, to subside. Now, listen to what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 8. He, that is Noah, waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. He sent out a bird uh, to see if the bird could find dry land. Smart guy, Noah. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So you see, Noah, he couldn't, he couldn't just step right out into the new creation. Now, he had been promised by God that he would enter it. The promise was already there, but he had to yachal for the time of its fulfillment. He had to wait until the fullness of time had come. And so the Bible uses this word yachal here to, to describe the hope that Noah had, the waiting. And the other word that, that we see in the Old Testament for hope is kava, right? So can I have our two, two volunteers, please? Dan and Chris are going to come up on the stage. Um, so the word... <laughs> This could go horribly wrong. The word, the word kavah comes, is based on the word kav, the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. So, oh, I've got a knot in it. So we have a cord. Here we have a cord, right? And uh, out of this cord, these guys are going to produce some kavah. So I want you to take that end, you take that end, and pull it tight without putting anyone's eye out. So pull it as tight as you can. This could be a bit of a competition. So what, <laughs> I don't want to get hit by it. So what they've done is this right here, this tension that's kavah. The, the word kavah means the state of tension that's produced when a cord, a calf, is pulled tight. There's tension, there's potential in there. Uh, so these guys have created kavah, so let's give them a round of applause. Thanks, guys. I'm so glad it didn't break. I was expecting somebody to get a, lose an eye. Um, when a calf is pulled tight, it produces kavah. And the guys created kavah out of this calf. It's that feeling of tension. It's that anticipation while you wait for something to snap. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, he, he, he describes it like this. He says, um, he says there's, a, there's a vineyard and he plants seed, the, the farmer plants seeds and he's waiting them for, he kavaz for them to grow. So listen to the words of Isaiah chapter five, verses one to two. He says, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. The farmer looked for, he cavad for the vineyard to bring forth fruit. And just like that cord pulled tight, right? The seeds have all that potential stored up in them. 
And he's waiting for that. The farmer's waiting for that potential. He's hoping in that potential, to, to that, that tension to be released. Waiting creates tension, right? If you've ever been in a waiting room for a job interview, you'll know that, right? You're waiting for your name to be called. You're like, oh, you feel that tension. Anticipation is tension. And it's an advent that we enter into this anticipation. We step into the tension of history. Kids have all advent calendars. So yesterday morning, uh, Finley got a Transformers one because that's what he's into right now. I know Tom will approve. Um, but it, 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 Every day we're going to count down the days till Christmas. And you remember what that feeling's like as a kid? Every day you're counting down the days and the kavah builds, the tension builds until on Christmas Eve you can't sleep because the anticipation's just too much and you're so excited. I still get a little bit like that, to be honest. <laughs> That's what kavah is. This is what hope looks like in the Bible. Yachal and kavah. To hope, to wait. And in the scriptures... Hopefully what I've just described, you'll see that this isn't just the same as optimism, right? It's not, it's not focused on, on an event. It's not focusing on a, a chance. It's not, it's not just taking a chance that somehow in the future things might get better or work out for the best. I, I really hope I get the results I need or I really hope that he likes me enough to ask me out or whatever it might be. We're not taking a chance. In the Bible, hope is way more than this. In the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Bible, the hope is focused on a person. Hope is based on God himself. Almost every time you hear these words or you read these words in the Old Testament, they're followed by in the Lord or in God. We see this really clearly all over this Bible, but especially in the prophets and in the Psalms. And this is where our passage comes into play this morning. We see both Yechal and Kavah played out. Let's look at verses. Keep your Bibles open uh, because we're going to dip into a lot of scripture this morning. Um, and it's a really good idea to just, uh, if you've got a Bible, bring it along uh, to gather because we're going to read it a lot and we're going to study it a lot. So um, keep your Bible open at Psalm 130 and look at verses 1 to 2 with me. He says this, he says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The psalmist, the writer of this psalm, he's in despair. He says he's in the depths. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on because we don't really know exactly who wrote this psalm. But it's pretty obvious that he wasn't having a good time, right? He said, I'm in the depths, Lord. Hear my pleas for mercy. He was feeling the weight of, of oppression. He was feeling the weight of his own sin. And he cries out to God for help. But look at what he does next. Look at verses five to seven with me. He says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. He's in despair. Things are really, really tough. And so he cries out to God for mercy. And then he stops and he starts preaching. And he starts speaking to himself. And he starts talking to the people of Israel, his people. That's why most people think this is a psalm of David. Because David very often will, will take uh, what he sent himself and then apply that like a good king does. Apply that to his people as well as a good example. So I'm going to read verses 5 to 7 again, and this time we're going to have it on the screen. 
This is what he says. He says, I kavah for the Lord. My soul kavahs, and in his word, I yachal. My soul kavahs for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, yachal in the Lord. Wait for the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. This means that in his despair, in his time of crying out to God for mercy, anxieties, and affliction, he is hoping in the Lord. He's waiting for the Lord. There's this tense expectation that is built up. Uh, the, the expectation, the tense expectation that the Lord will rescue him. It's almost like he says it as a sheer thing. How? How can he have this certainty? <laughs> because of the end. Because of the truth of the end of verse 7. For with the Lord there is what? Steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. It's because of this plentiful redemption and steadfast love that he knows that he can wait for the Lord. The Lord has already proved it. It's not merely hoping that things will somehow get better for him. No, he has this firm and confident hope that he will be rescued. Why? Because of who God is. He describes God's character. He said, I'm going to wait for the Lord. You guys should wait for the Lord too. Why? Because this is who God is. He is steadfast love and with him is plentiful, uh, plentiful redemption. Hope in the Old Testament was, was based on, on who God is and what he had done. In fact, the identity of the Old Testament people of God, the nation of Israel, was based on who God is and what he had done. You see, they existed as a nation, as a redeemed people, right? They became a nation when they were saved from slavery out of Egypt. That's when they became God's people. This is what the Bible says. They were a redeemed people and their hope flowed out of that historical truth. And so they looked forward by looking back. They looked forward by looking back at what God had already done because what he had already done proved to them who he is. Over 80 times in the Old Testament, God reminds his people that he is the Lord their God and he has saved them out of Egypt. Over 80 times this phrase is mentioned. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, a direct command. Do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Don't forget this because this is what your hope, this is what your identity is based on. I've brought you out of the house of slavery. God had saved them and this is what they were to base their hope for the future on. They were, remember, they were to remember what God had done for them and so, um, and so they could be sure that he would rescue them again. They, they looked forward by looking back. Isn't that beautiful? There was an absolute surety there because, because God had already saved them. In one of the darkest periods of Israel's history, a time when they were in exile and a time when they were in rebellion, the prophet Hosea if you ever read the, you should go and read that book in the Bible. It's incredible. But he says this. He says that God will turn his valley of trouble into a door of hope. Isn't that amazing? God, you turn my valley of trouble into a door of hope. Why? Because of the days when he brought them out of Egypt. He says, like, it will be like in the days when you brought us out of Egypt. He looks forward by looking back. Hope based on knowing who God is. Hope based on, on, on what God had done. And, and guess what? It's the same for us this morning, right? All the way, if you're a Christian all the way through, I'm saying these things, that should be ringing bells for you. 
See, we look back to our redemption. We look back to the cross of Jesus. That's the source of our hope. And we wait for his return. Yesterday morning I was teaching Finley that, 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 Jesus, uh, that Jesus came to make things right. And he is coming back to make things right once and for all. And that's why we wait for his return. That's why we, we do Advent. It's our hope. Just like the Israelites in the Old Testament, our identity is based on God, who God is and what he has done. We're redeemed people and so we look, we look forward by looking back as well. Our hope is secure because of who our hope is in. Let me say that again. Our, our hope is secure because of who our hope is in. We're not just saying, oh, I hope things work out for the best or we don't know, Right? We don't know. I, I was chatting with someone uh, last week and uh, going through some, uh, one of her family members going through some serious illness and um, they, they're, not, they're not Christians and, and they just, they just, they're just like, I don't know how it's going to work out. I want to tell him that it's going to be okay, but I don't know it's going to be okay. And the truth is, if I were in that situation... I wouldn't know if things are going to be okay in that sense as well, but I know ultimately things will be okay because Jesus has came and he's coming again. This is why we can say the words, I was going to say read the words, we can say the words of Psalm 130 in the same spirit, in the same voice that Claire read, uh, the psalmist writing these things, and he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. Because our hope is secure, isn't it? It's why at Advent we enter into this season of hoping, of more than just hoping than the way we think of it, but, but a season of waiting and a season of tense expectation. But what does it mean? Like we say, I'm going to wait for the Lord. Well, what was he doing here? Was he, he's waiting for the Lord, waiting for the Lord to, to do what? To do something, to, to show up, to whatever. But look at verse 8 and he tells us the answer. Verse 8 says, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That's what he's waiting for. He's waiting for salvation. He's looking forward to that time when, when the, the Messiah would come and, and save all his people. In the Old Testament, they waited for the salvation of the nation of Israel. They looked forward to a time when, when they would be redeemed through the coming of the Messiah. See, like we saw already, the, the hope of the Bible has a focus. It's, the, it's actually the focal point of history. He is the focal point of history. The salvation that's, that, that's talked about in the Old Testament and in the New Testament has a name. Salvation is Jesus. Jesus is our hope. In the Old Testament, he's called the Messiah. In the, in the New Testament, he's called the Christ. Now, I know we say Jesus Christ a lot. It's not like it's a surname. He's not Mr. Christ. Christ is... Is that... Is that a little bit blasphemous? I'm not sure. I'm trying to make a point, God. Um, he's, he's called Jesus Christ. He's called Christ Jesus. That's his title. It means, same as Messiah, it means anointed one. He is the chosen one of God. And he has been promised from the very, very beginning. Let me show you how this whole story of the Bible is about him. Ambitious. I'm going to show you how the whole Bible is about Jesus. Uh, Turn to Genesis chapter 3 if you have a Bible there. It's good. The passage is going to be on the screen, but turn along and follow along so you know I'm not making it up. And we're going to read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And you might think it's not a very Christmassy passage, but there we are. Now the serpent, 
was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the, tree, of, of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now notice what it says. The first thing it says about the serpent is that he's crafty. Snakes do look a bit crafty, don't they? The serpent is crafty. He's clever. He's cunning. He knows just exactly what to say to get her attention and get her start to thinking in a different way. And so he does three things, and we're going to see these three things. Firstly, he calls into question God's word. Look at verse 1. Did God actually say that? Come on. Really? Did God really say that? He calls into question God's word. And secondly, he downplays the consequence of sin. You won't die. It'll be fine. You're not going to die. And thirdly, he questions God's character. Verse 5. You see, God, God has been generous and loving, and he's provided Adam and Eve he, everything they need to thrive. He's put them in paradise. He's given them this good creation. He's given them food. He's given them the gifts of each other. But the serpent makes him out to be cruel and selfish. And Eve believes him. Eve listens. And then Eve and Adam, they, 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 they disobey God, and they, and they fall and they start to realize they're naked and they see, they, they see their shame. They, they want to cover themselves. They want to hide in their shame. And sometimes I think about this, you know, where, where was God in all of this? Well, let's find out. What does God do in all of this? Does he wait for them to come crawling back? Does he stay in heaven and, and go, you guys are in for it now. I'm going to wait. You'll realize. I'm going to wait for you to come to me and crawl back saying you're sorry. No. Look at verses 8 and 9 of Genesis chapter 3. And they heard, that's Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. I always think, oh yeah, like that was going to work. They'll hide in the trees, go won't find me here. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? You see, God didn't wait for them to come crawling back. God pursued them. He comes to them in the middle of their, right in the middle of their rebellion. He comes to them and he comes first and foremost with a way to make things right. He pursues them in, in their sin and he has this promise, this way that this horrible situation is going to be fixed. And listen to what he says in verse 14. He curses the serpent. He curses the father of lies. He curses the one who has led them astray. And he says this, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat, and, and, dust, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but, but these are two of the most amazing verses in the whole Bible. This is the beginning of time. And look what's happening. Theologians call it the proto-evangelion. That means the first gospel. This is the first declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right at the beginning, the serpent's demise is 
assured. It's promised. It's announced. The one who brought evil into the world will be defeated. And sin and death and everything that goes along with it will be defeated forever. The serpent will bruise his heel and he will crush the serpent's head. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I certainly have. If you're walking in your bare feet and you stand on a piece of Lego, that's like the worst. It feels like the worst thing in the world. But essentially, you might walk around the house swearing and complaining for a while, but eventually you're going to walk it off and you're going to be fine. But if something's head gets crushed, it's dead. There's no coming back from that. It's done. And this is what God has promised that the promised anointed one will do. He will crush the head of the serpent right here in the very beginning, in the middle of their sin, at the very beginning of sin, redemption from our rebellion is promised. The end of evil is declared. And from that moment, the world was in a state of yachal, waiting for this promised one. The world was in a state of kavah, this this tense expectation that, 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 that the promised one is coming to destroy evil forever. And then you can imagine Eve getting pregnant. She's got this kid, this baby inside her, and it's moving around, and she's thinking, is this going to be the one? Is this going to be the one that's going to crush evil and going to make things right? Are we going to be made right with God by this baby? And Cain is born, and Cain's not the one. And then Abel, she gets pregnant again with Abel, and then he's not the one. And so it goes on and on, generation after generation of waiting, of hope being raised, and then hope being dashed. Every time, tension is being built up, but it never comes to anything. I sometimes think about it, it's like, why, why is it whenever, sometimes it feels like in life, why are, is it, whenever there's a wee bit of hope, it seems to get dashed? Just this week, I was uh, uh, talking to someone who had uh, gone through a miscarriage, and I can't think of a, I can't, I can't think of a worse dashed hope than that. The expectation of parents looking forward to this tiny baby and then it taken away. It's so painful because hope is crushed. It's snuffed out like a candle. Do you ever feel that way in life? Do you ever feel like that your hope is just being snuffed out? Do you ever feel like you're waiting on something that never comes? Do you ever feel like that there, there is no hope? What's going on there? Why are we in this state? Well, to answer this question, we need to go to the last book in the Bible. So we've already read the start of the, 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 the story, and now we need to read the end of the story. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, if you have, it, have your Bibles there. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 to 5. This is the, the John, the same John whose letters we just went through few weeks ago, and uh, whose letter we just went through a few weeks ago, and he's been exiled uh, for loving Jesus. He's been exiled to this island, and here uh, God gives him these visions of the end of all things, and this is part of what he sees. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars in heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. 
She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, maybe you're listening to that, reading that, and you're thinking, what the heck is going on? Dragons, seven heads, eating babies. It's crazy. Happy Christmas. But here's a quick lesson in, uh, a quick lesson in Revelation. When we read Revelation, we need to remember it's not different than any other book of the Bible, except that it is this particular type of uh, literary genre, which we won't go into now. But it's, what you need to know is it's loaded with symbolism. And he's writing to, he's writing to churches there in the present. And he's saying, this is what's coming. And I, I've seen all these things loaded with symbolism. So let's, it, it's a bit like, um, I heard someone say this. It's like, if you ever watch Stranger Things? So Stranger Things where um, there's the, the parallel, the other dimension called the upside down. It exists at the same time, almost like behind the scenes. It exists like that. Um, and so this is what's going on here. There's more to life than meets the eye. There's more, uh, there's more than we can physically see around us. And if we look closely at this passage in Revelation 12, we can see that the same three characters that were in play in Genesis 3 are here in Revelation. There's the woman, there's the serpent, who's now pictured as a dragon, and there's the offspring, the one promised is about to be born and then is born, and he's been revealed to be a male child. The woman represents the nation of Israel, the crown of of 12 stars. The 12 stars represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and she's pregnant because the Messiah would come through the nation of Israel. And, and God's people are not just the nation of Israel anymore. God's people are, are now Jews and Gentiles and the church. And these days the church isn't looked on very favorably, right? But, but here we see that she is clothed in the splendor of the sun. And she has the moon under her feet, signifying her dominion over creation. The way God created things to be. And then there's the dragon, and he has been revealed elsewhere in in Revelation to be Satan. This is Satan himself, and he's got crowns on his head. Not crowns of victory, but crowns that that he has stolen. Crowns that show the the power that he has stolen over the world. And his horns, the horns represent this destruction that he brings. And then there's the offspring, the male child born. Sorry, my throat is really dry. And he's the Messiah. He is Jesus. This is showing Jesus. Have you ever thought of this? We don't read this in the nativity play, but this is an account of Jesus' birth. The baby born here is Jesus, and it says that he will rule over the nations. He is the promised one, and the dragon is waiting to devour the child as soon as he's born. He wants to snuff out the hope of the world. He wants to end the yachal. And we see this in Jesus' life, don't we? You remember the nativity place? Remember the nativity story? The wise men see the star appearing in the sky and they know that from their study of the stars that this means that a king has been born. So they follow the star and, and come to Herod's palace who was the king of Israel. Because where else would you look for a king that had been born, right? But in a palace. So they go to the palace and Herod gets freaked out and he's like, nah, not under my watch. So he orders that all male children born should be killed at birth. You see, he wants to snuff out the hope. He wants to end the yichal. But the dragon doesn't succeed. Look at verse 5. The child is born, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Do you know what this is? This is the resurrection of Jesus right here. 
This is the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. This is when the serpent's head was crushed once and for all. Jesus defeated the enemy, and he's now seated on his throne. He bears the scars of having his heel crushed, but they're, they're not scars of defeat. They're scars of, of a victorious battle. When you win a battle, you might get some scars, and this is what the scars that Jesus bears. The victory was won when Jesus, on the third day, rose from the dead, walked out of the tomb, and 40 days later ascended to heaven to sit in the right hand of the Father. Nothing can stop the salvation plan of God. And so we see from Genesis to Revelation how the plan has always been Jesus. From the very, very beginning. In the middle of our rebellion, God says, okay, we're doing this. It's always been you, Jesus. Jesus fulfills Genesis. Jesus fulfills Revelation. And he fills all of history in between. Jesus is the Yachal. Jesus is the Kavah. Jesus is the hope. Are you getting that this morning? But what, why am I telling you all this? Why are we looking at this as we enter into Advent? Well, we already saw it sometimes in life that it feels like hope is snuffed out, doesn't it? And sometimes we're, we, we listen more to movies than we do to, to the, God, the Word of God. And, and movies always, I don't know if you've seen any of these movies. Like I think of, there's one with like uh, Keanu Reeves. And, and it's almost like the, the devil and God are in their equal opponents in a battle. They're equal opponents. But this is not what the Bible tells us. It's not yin and yang, good and evil. It's not that at all. Victory has always belonged to Jesus. The demise of the serpent was announced from the very, very beginning. His fate was sealed. God declared it all the way back in the garden. And guess what happens? When God says something, it happens. He spoke the world into being. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And he says, serpent, your head will be crushed, and his head was crushed. And if we read on in Revelation 12, we would see what happens next. Satan's defeated, and we read that he's cast down from heaven. And, 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 he, and all the angels that follow him, they're cast down to earth with him. And he knows he's defeated, and he's furious like a wounded animal. And he turns his attention away from the Messiah uh, to the woman again and to her other offspring. Look at verse 17 of Revelation 12. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. This should shock you. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. You know what this is saying? This is saying that Satan is attacking the church. This is saying that the devil is making war with us. That we, that we have an enemy. And he knows he's been defeated by Jesus and so he turns his attention to us. I just want to say this to you. The struggle you feel is real. The struggle you feel is real. We are in a war. And Ephesians 6 puts it this way. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Sometimes we feel the attacks of the enemy really acutely, don't we? Sometimes we feel like we're under attack after attack. It, feel, it just feels relentless, doesn't it? You ever feel like that? 
The enemy's doing everything he can to destroy the church and to beat down the followers of Jesus. And you know what? He still uses the same tactics as he was in the garden. He still calls in the question God's word. Did God really say, set your mind on heavenly things? Sure, there's more important things in life. What about your relationships and your money and the way you look? What about your comfort and security? Those things are far more important than what God actually said. He downplays the consequence of sin, doesn't he? It doesn't really matter if you forgive your sister in Christ. No harm done. Sure, what harm is there looking at porn online? It's not hurting anyone. Nobody knows about it. It's, my, it's our secret. It doesn't really matter if you gossip about somebody. Sure, what's the harm? It's just exciting to, to tell something cool that happened. And he questions God's character. If God really loved you, why, why is your friend dying? If God really loved you, why are you going through this hell right now? Does God really love you? Do you ever feel those questions? Do you ever feel those things in your mind? Do you ever feel that oppression? Like sometimes it's almost too much to bear. Do you ever feel beat down and, and, and weary and, and just maybe at the end of your tether? And my challenge for us this morning is this. What are you going to do when the struggle is real? What are you going to do when the darkness seems greater than the light? What are you going to do when you feel beat down? What will we do then? Yesterday, um, yesterday the women got together here and uh, were remembering hope. Remember hope. And it's funny, uh, no plagiarism at all, I promise. It's just that, uh, it's just funny we're starting hope and they started hope yesterday. And this is why we need to remember the hope we have in Jesus. We need to remember the yakal that started with the promise of, the, of Jesus coming in Genesis 3. Romans chapter 8 says this. For I consider, this is Paul speaking to the church. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Eager longing, it's the same idea as Chavah. What does it mean? It means that the struggle of the war that we are in right now doesn't even compare to the future that's promised to us in Jesus. See, he says that creation is in this state of Chavah. It's in this state of tension. It's longing for us, and it's longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That time when the, the, the time will come when creation will be restored, restored and, and us as the sons and daughters of God will be revealed to live in the fullness of his promises. This is what we long for. This is what we wait for. When evil will be dealt its final blow. When we'll no longer wrestle with those sins. When we'll no longer wrestle with those lies of the devil. This is why we look back to the cross of Jesus, isn't it? We look back so we can look forward. We look forward by looking back. And when we do that, we can be sure that the day will come. We're in this time of Yakal. We're in this time of Kavah. We can feel the tension. Do you feel it? Do you feel that tension? Do you ever look around at the world or look at, look at your own circumstances even? Look at... Look at the situations around the world on a global scale as well, and, and you see the pain and brokenness and, and something, you know, C.S. Lewis, he saw this and he says that something isn't quite right. And 
we feel that. And I'd be hard-pressed to find anyone, atheist or, or Christian or Buddhist or Hindu or whatever, that doesn't say there's something wrong with the world. This can't be it. Something must be broken. And so we need to remember the victory that Jesus won. You see, the church may be attacked, but you know what Jesus said? Jesus said that he is building this church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's you and me. That's us. Sometimes I think about Mary. Um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and how she knelt beside the manger, looking over her baby like just like a really good mummy. So much hope in that infant. So much promise in that wee child. And she's been promised by the, the angel Gabriel, the messenger of the Lord himself, that she's going to give birth to and raise the Messiah. Her baby's going to be the one that's going to crush the serpent's head. And then fast forward 33 years, and the same woman who knelt at the manger knelt at the cross. Just a mommy watching her son tortured and dying slowly. I can imagine that she didn't really feel much kava that day. I'm guessing that her hope was maybe all but gone when she saw him die. And it seemed that the dragon had devoured the child. And, 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 and without the resurrection, that's what the cross of Jesus looks like, Right? It looks like hope has been snuffed out. It looks, like, it looks like hope has been permanently dashed. But when all hope was gone, the infant king spoke. His thunderous voice echoed through time and space and eternity and said, it is finished. And the third day he rose again. Forty days later he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. This is our hope, guys. He is our hope. So we look forward by looking back. We might feel crushed and we might feel oppressed and we might feel beaten down and we might feel tempted by all kinds of sin and we might feel just tempted to throw in the towel and give up. But we look forward by looking back and Jesus is our sure hope. He's always been the sure hope from the very beginning of time. Now Christmas, despite what movies and Hallmark and adverts and everything tells us Christmas isn't a happy time for everyone, is it? For a lot of people, there's not much joy in it. Christmas is that time when you notice when people aren't there. Christmas is the time when you actually feel more pressure to have more money and the whole system tumbles out of control and you're like, I can't afford to be happy. But if you're putting your hope in Christmas, if you're putting your hope in anything that isn't Jesus, it will be snuffed out. The only hope that's safe and secure and lasting is Jesus because he is the fulfillment of hope. He's the one that was promised from the very beginning of time and he's the one that is gonna come back and fulfill all of this. So as we finish today, I'm gonna to finish by reading those words from Psalm 130 and I want them to be our prayer this morning. Do we yachal in the Lord? Do we kavah in Jesus? Is there that tense expectation that Jesus is coming and he will make things right and so we don't give up, we don't fall down? Advent is the time when we choose to turn from despair 
and trust in hope in the one who has come and the one who is coming again. This is what the psalmist says. He says, I wait for the Lord. If you're hurting today, if you're in pain today, or if you're just so busy in the middle of a busy life, pray these words, trust these words. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. We, we keep a, we, what is it that, 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 that sailors say? We keep a weather eye on the horizon because Jesus is coming back. His kingdom has already begun. The enemy's already defeated and he is coming again to just put his stamp on that victory and claim it forever. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you didn't leave us in our rebellion. You didn't leave us in our sin. Right there at the beginning, you promised one who would come and, and make things right, to do away with evil forever. Father, we thank you that that person is Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to go to the cross and die. We thank you for your, uh, your power that raised you from the dead and ascended you to heaven. Without this, Lord, we have no hope. Father, I pray that as we, uh, even after this, go into our daily lives again, and tomorrow when we go to school and work and care for parents and care for kids and whatever it is we're doing, Father, Lord, I just pray that we wouldn't lose this hope. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room that's, that's feeling beat down, that's feeling at the end of their tether. Father, reveal yourself as, to them personally as their hope. Lord, we, we reject all the other hopes of the world and we say that, Jesus, you are hope, so we wait for the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for making all of this possible through your death and resurrection. We love you, Jesus. Amen.